Acts chapter 13, uh, verse number 1. Now there was in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers, as Barnabas and Simeon, that was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manian, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed, they laid their hands on them. They sent them away. So they, being sent forth by the Holy Ghost, departed unto Seleucia, and from thence sailed to Cyprus. And when, and, and when they were at uh, Salamis, they preached uh, the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews, and they had also John to their minister. When they had gone through the isle of, of Paphmos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew, whose name was Bar-Jesus, which was with the deputy of the country, Sergius Paulus, a prudent man, who called for Barnabas and Saul and desired to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the sorcerer, for so is his name by interpretation, withstood them, seeking to turn away the deputy from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Ghost, set his eyes on him. And said, O full of subtlety and all mischief, thou child of the devil, thou enemy of all righteousness, wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon thee, and thou shalt be blind, not seeing the sun for a season. And immediately there fell on him a mist and a darkness, and he went about seeking some to lead him by the hand. Then the deputy, when he saw what was done, believed, being astonished at the doctrine of the Lord. Now when Paul and his company loosed from Paphmos, they, uh, they came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John departed from them, returned to Jerusalem. Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, Lord, I love you. Lord, I thank you for your word. Lord, I ask your blessing upon the service this morning. Lord, I pray, number one, you'd be glorified and honored. Help me to stay true to your word. Uh, Lord, I pray that it would have your blessing upon it. May your word have free course. Lord, please use it this morning to draw us closer to you. Please give us understanding of your word and of truth. Lord, meet the needs that are here. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who has never truly been converted, Lord, I pray that even this morning they repent and place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, may you be glorified and honored. I pray and ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. As we come into Acts chapter 13, we're back again at the church at Antioch. Again, we got introduced to this church back in Acts chapter 11. We had the, we had the salvation in, in Acts chapter 10 of the very first Gentile, Cornelius. Uh, right after that takes place, we have men who hear about it and they begin preaching in the city of, city of Antioch, which if you remember, that's a major world city at this time. It is the third largest city in the world when this is taking place. Rome is the largest, followed by Alexandria, and then Antioch. This is not a small place. And so they begin preaching and Gentiles uh, uh, begin to repent and put their faith in Christ. The church at Jerusalem hears about it and they send Barnabas. Barnabas said they're just rejoicing. It's like, it's happening. The door, the floodgates are opening. The gospel is hitting the Gentiles. Barnabas begins to preach and the Bible uses a word that means a great multitude. We're, we're talking more than likely into the thousands who begin to convert. He needs help. He goes and gets a man uh, that he had met much earlier, ten years prior, a man by the name of Saul. 
The man who was at one time persecuting the church, but when he was on the road to Damascus, we looked at that in Acts chapter 9, he was converted. He goes to find him in Tarsus in that area. The Lord directs, he finds him, he says, listen, I need your help in Antioch. It's just exploding there. They go. So when we left off that chapter, the two pastors in that church were Barnabas and Saul, and it finished with this, that they taught the word of God, it was going on for a year. Could you imagine being taught by Barnabas and Saul for one year? Then we had our last chapter, we got into events that took place back in the church at Jerusalem, with persecution taking place, with James the Apostle being killed. We also had two men that were present for that. That was Barnabas and Saul. They had traveled from Antioch to bring an offering to the church at Jerusalem uh, um, because of the, the famine had hit. And so they're at the church of Jerusalem when all this takes place. They head back to Antioch. We pick it up now in chapter 13. And when we were there, when we saw the start of that church in Antioch, we saw what was important, the framework for a, for a, a, a true New Testament church. We saw what would be needed for that to take place. A church that was cleaving unto the Lord. A church that had God's hand upon it. A church that had biblical teaching and preaching taking place. How that's what the Lord was looking for. This church becomes a key church in the first century. We see what made them different. These are the things that a church should be doing. But now, when we get to chapter 13, it's time for this church to take the next step. Growth has been taking place. Uh, Souls have been saved, baptized. They're getting grounded. And now that deals with world missions. Under the direction of the Lord, this church is getting ready to send out the very first missionaries. Now, we've had, we've had many uh, spread the gospel out and head out in different regions, but again, primarily the gospel has still been being preached to, to the nation of Israel, and that's it in those different areas. And that was never set out for the purpose of preaching the gospel and establishing the churches. It was by necessity of the persecution that they spread out. But now, for the first time in world history, we have a local church under the direction of the Lord that is going to send forth missionaries for the preaching of the gospel and establishing of local churches. It's an important day. So this is a church that we see in Antioch that is, really is incredible. A great example for us. A, a church that the Lord is using a church that brings glory and honor unto God, and we see how it's done. How it's not through gimmicks, it's not through entertainment, it's not through putting on a rock concert, it's not through putting on a show or the pastor showing up in a clown suit. What God honors is is when people truly assemble to glorify Him, and His Word is taught and preached, God blesses that. It's not how big the church is. It's not the size of it, not how big or how small. It's if it's truly honoring God. Where it's not pride-driven. But is it actually about the Lord? We don't have to become contemporary and build bridges. I don't have to go get all tattooed up and throw earrings on so we can reach the younger generation. And somehow think that I'm all cool. You know, by the way, the lost world sees that in a church and they just think it's a joke, by the way. I went to this preacher's thing, a dinner here, several weeks back associated with the radio. And uh, it was packed with pastors. And I remember one, one I'm thinking, hmm, 
Because that emergent style is just sweeping through churches, of changing to be like the world. Listen, by the way, there's a reason that we structure our church the way that we do. There's a reason why the music isn't secular. There's a reason why we have it that way. There's verses in the Bible that's based on biblical principles like found in Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2. <clears throat> but at that dinner I saw he had this, it was a watch. But the face of it was about the size of a clock. I'm not kidding, like a small clock on his wrist. And he was about my age. I am 52 years old. And he had like this little mohawk faddish thing. I'm like, oh, I need to do that. That's exactly what I need to do. I need to do that because all those 22-year-olds that are lost are going to come to church when they see my fat watch and my cool hair and a little tattoo on my wrist. You know what it's about? The teaching and preaching of the Word of God. If people come and choose to reject that, then they reject the Lord. But we have to honor God. That's what we have to do. That's what we're responsible to do. This was a church that was glorifying God and honoring Him. And we see the key as we go through this is the Spirit of God and the Word of God. Men filled with the Spirit. Men following the Spirit's leading. Men teaching and preaching the Word of God. But we also see one of the important things we're going to look in today's message is this, is that when you are getting serious, when a church is doing right, when you're doing right in your own personal life and you get serious with your walk with the Lord, opposition will come. There will be battles to face. There will be those who oppose what you are doing. We will see this opposition hit, not only from without, but from within, on the very first part of the missionary journey. When you get serious with your faith, when you get serious with the gospel, battles are going to come. Listen, we're located right in the heart of Anchorage. We're right here. A local New Testament church. We want God's blessing. We want His hand upon us like the church at Antioch had. We want to be able to bring glory and honor to Him. We have to follow His way to accomplish that, not our way. It's not about what's pragmatic. It's about what does God honor. And so I wonder what the Lord could do with us when His Spirit can just take control and we follow His leading. When we allow the Word of God to permeate us. When we actually desire the teaching and the preaching of the Word of God not to be entertained because of a certain music style. So I broke this down into three areas today. We're going to see the pastors of this church, the parting that takes place, and the problems that will arise. First off, verse number one, the pastors that are there. Now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers, as Barnabas and Simeon, that was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manian, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. An amazing group of men right here, as we're going to see. This church is obviously much more than a year old now. When it got started, it, it started primarily just with Saul and Barnabas as the pastors, but as it grew and the teaching was growing, the preaching was taking place, and Christians were growing, we see other men coming to key positions in leadership at the church at Antioch. The Bible lists them for us here. It gives us five men. Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius, uh, um, Manian. Um, and, and, only one of these men, by the way, I'd sit in my mind right now. Only one of these men, which is interesting, grew up in Israel. 
at the church in Antioch. That was the last remaining. He's it. The others did not. Leadership in a church, as we're going to see here, is very important. Remember, we went through the book of Hosea. Hosea brought up a, says it makes a great statement of what was going on, you know, in the nation that was leading to the apostasy taking place. And he said, uh, um, like priests, like people. He made that statement. Like people, like priests. Leadership is important. Having godly leadership, those who approach the word of God with a seriousness, being controlled by the spirit of God. There certainly are churches packed with men serving as pastors who are not consumed with teaching or preaching the Word of God, or not even close to being controlled or filled with the Spirit of God, but are what, led by what is pragmatic and what they think will work for the day. What are my peers doing? That's what directs and guides the decisions. It's what will make my people feel good, or what will make them laugh, or what will make them cry. Let's take a look at these different men that are here. We have Barnabas. Of course, we meet him going all the way back early in the book of Acts. The man has always been the encourager. He is the one who lifts the fallen ones. He is the one, what I love about him, as I was studying this week, and I I pinned it like this, I said, he is the one who sees the potential in others. He sees the potential in others. He was incredibly personable. Really, this is areas that Paul himself lacked in. You can see why the Lord teamed them up, why the Lord said... You separate me, Barnabas and Saul. So he had this encourager. The one who was able to see the needs of the people easily to try and be a help. Then we have Simeon called Niger. Niger is Latin. It's a Latin word for black. So likely a black man. By the way, keep in mind, none of these men are white, by the way. Not one. The gospel has not went into Europe yet. That will not take place to the second missionary journey when Paul reaches across and heads into Macedonia and establishes a church in Philippi. It's not in Europe yet. It hasn't taken place. <clears throat> Some believe there's arguments made. Philip's made the argument this is the same man as, as Simon of Cyrene that carried the Lord's cross. Now, we do know he did convert. We see his, his wife in the book of Acts. We're going to see his children. And so some make the case that this is referring to him that he came to the church at Antioch. There's arguments on both sides. I'm not certain of it if, if it's the same man or not. But Philip, who I respect a lot, he does make the case that this is that same man. And if it is, Not only does every church need a man like Barnabas, the encourager. Not only do they need somebody in leadership who who can see the needs and be the help and see the potential. But they could also use a man just like this. A man through what he has been through, who has carried the cross, who has suffered for the cause of Christ. Who can relate that to others. Who has that realness of Christ in his life. Then we have Lucius. This is not the Luke who is pinning this book in. This is a different man. This man is from Cyrene. Cyrene was in Africa. And by the way, tradition says that it's this Lucius that led this Simeon to the Lord. Unless it was the same as the one who carried the cross of Christ. This man is mentioned one other time. He's with the Apostle Paul when he's writing the book of Romans. You'll see that in Romans chapter 16. Then we have another man. There's not much said of him. Manian. 
he's interesting. This guy is the foster brother of Herod. So think how he grew up here. Now, which Herod? This is not Herod Agrippa that we talked about last week. Um, this is not that one. This is his uncle. This is not Herod the Great, who was, who was in charge of Palestine when Christ was born. This is one of Herod the Great's sons. Agrippa is his grandson. You have Herod the Great. Agrippa, who we looked at last week, is his grandson. This is Herod Antipas, which is one of his uncles, a son of Herod the Great. All right? Um, and this man grew up with him as a foster brother. This is the Herod of the Gospels, though. The Herod he grew up with is the same one who killed John the Baptist. It's the same one. So this man here that we see in the church at Antioch that's in a position of leadership, he grew up with influence. He grew up with an education. He grew up with wealth. He had connections. He was a man of status, a man of rank. Think of how different the two brothers' lives turned out. For two completely different roads. One living for power and pleasure and self-indulgence. The other seeing the truth in Christ and giving us all for that. And here he is, one of the leaders at the church in Antioch. I believe churches also need men like this. Men who choose to leave behind the pursuit of pleasure, the pursuit of power, who had access to it, but understand, no, that it's simply life is all about God. The church had that in this man in Antioch. And then let's not forget about Paul. He's in this church. I mean, the man who I personally believe is the greatest Christian who ever lived. His life is incredible. Paul, a man who could expound the word of God, who the Lord had blessed with the clarity uh, between the Old Testament, what was taking place now in the New Testament time frame. A, a man who would be responsible for pinning in foundational books of doctrine like the book of Romans. Who would, God would use to pin in two-thirds of the New Testament. A man who could teach and preach and give clarity of the word of God like no other. He's here in the church in Antioch. A man who also knows what it's like to give up all that he had in the past for Christ. His position, his family, his friends. I mean, this was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. This was a man in leadership at a young age. This was a man that was on a track to a high position. A man of respect in his own nation. But once he saw the truth of Christ... It was all but done. He saw this. It was, he said, there's no comparison. Boy, he could present that to the church at Antioch. He could let them know, as those men would come in, those Gentiles would come in, and he would let them know who he was before. All that he had. He said, listen, that was all trash before. It was nothing. How life is all about Christ. So you have these spiritual men, these spiritual giants Godly teachers and preachers of the Word of God. Jews, Gentiles, wealthy, common. All chosen, all controlled by the Spirit of God. And from there now we have the parting. Look at verse 2 through 4. 
As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So they, being sent forth by the Holy Ghost, departed unto Seleucia, uh, and from, there, from thence sailed to Cyprus. Let's stop right there. So now they're busy serving. The church is growing. It's clearly becoming the key church of the first century. We learn here in verse 2 how serious the leadership of the church is. They're ministering, fasting, praying. The word, the word used for ministering here is very interesting. It's from a Greek word that in Scripture describes priestly service. So, let's, let's put this together a little bit. It's, I think it's fascinating. So, serving in leadership in this church was an act of worship to God and consisted of basically what we'll call spiritual sacrifices, including prayer, oversight of the flock, teaching, preaching the Word of God. This is their sacrifice. It's not coming to the temple and offering a lamb or a turtle dove. But it's their spiritual efforts. That's the word that's used here. It would be the same thing what they would use before, referring to priestly service in dealing with sacrifices like lambs and turtle doves and whatnot. But now it's used in a different sense right here. That, that what their sacrifice was, was what they were doing in ministering to the people. Let me quote from one source here. One pastor and commentator said it like this. He happens to also be a pastor. He said, my sacrifice to God is my service rendered in every sermon I preach. Let me, let me start that again. My sacrifice to God is my service rendered in every sermon I preach is in my heart as, it, as if I were bringing an offering under the very sanctuary of the Old Testament to present it to God. That's how the leadership saw their service. That's how they approached it with that level of seriousness. So they are giving themselves, as they should, to the people and to the Word of God. So many times in churches, people who are called into spiritual leadership are drowning in a sea of activity and all kinds of things taking place. But it may or may not actually be related to spiritual ministry. Which always comes back to the dissemination of the Word of God. They're fasting and they're praying, the Bible teaches us. They're not fasting to lose weight. But this is, this is saying we have to get a hold of God. It shows that desire for God, the seriousness. So then we see what happens when you have a church that is growing like this, taking it so serious. They're working, they're obedient, they're faithful. Is next what begins to take place is God begins to call. They have their hand upon them. They're clinging to the Lord. We saw that in chapter 11. We're going to see God's going to call out two of the men. By the way, God never calls out those who are not busy and faithful. He doesn't. He doesn't call out those who are, busy, who are not busy and faithful. Who are not faithful with whatever area God has already given them to be faithful at. Christ taught about on this on parable after parable. God's going to call men to leave Antioch, to head out, and begin a missionary journey. God's going to call men who will be faithful. 
God knows their heart. He knows how serious they are. So he puts his direction and his leadership on it. He knows that your, ge- your geographical location has nothing to do with the position of your feet, but with your heart. So God calls men here who are faithful, who have proved themselves in the local church, who were busy, who were spirit-filled, and who had the ability to teach the Word of God. So from this group of five, the Lord calls two men to part, Barnabas and Saul. Now, let's pretend we're back in the church at Antioch. And all of a sudden, you hear the Lord is going to call out two people out of the church. One, you hope it's none of those five. You hope it's none of those guys. I'm sure you've got a list of names. Lord, you can call him out, you can call him out, but, but not them. But let's say you hear it's going to be from the five in leadership. I guarantee you every single one of the members are like, just not Barnabas and Saul. <laughs> just not Barnabas and Saul. Please, just not those two. But that's exactly who the Lord's going to call. The Lord lets them know to separate unto me Barnabas and Saul, where unto the work I have called them. We have God calling her the church, God calling here the church sending. Once it's clear what the Holy Spirit wants done, they lay their hands on them. By the way, this doesn't give any special power. My goodness, it doesn't. It's not some special power. It's, it's, it's just like you go back to the Old Testament. It's saying, you're in our place. You have our blessing, our power, our authority. We know God is in this. You have our backing. It showed the church took this serious. They understood when these men head out, it's going to be full of danger. It's going to be full of hardships. What they're getting ready to do is going to be very difficult. And the church recognizes that. But they also see this mission is of utmost importance. Others need to hear. So then we get into the problem. The last point here, number three. Look at verse number five. When they were at Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had also John to their minister. And when they had gone through the Isle of Paphmos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew, whose name was Bar-Jesus, which, with the, which was with the deputy of the country, Sergius Paulus, a prudent man, who called for Barnabas and Saul and desired to hear the word of God. And then, of course, we have Elymas, which is the same man introduced earlier, just is different name, same name, and, uh, um, that is given a different language. Um, who's going to withstand them. He's going to try and convince the, uh, the deputy not to turn to Christ. And then we see how Paul handles it. So let's dive into this. So they head out on their first missionary journey. And as they head out, it won't be long before problems arise, hindrances come, opposition hits. When you determine to do something for the Lord, make no mistake about it, the fight is on. I remember when we headed out for debutation. This church sent us. Uh, we had the Holy Spirit's leading in our life to head to Papua New Guinea. We get sent out. We, we, we have trouble as soon as we get into Canada. Problems arise. Three days later, problems arose more from Daniel cutting his thumb off, ripping the back of the motorhome open. Problems began to arise. 
I can think back to New Guinea. Problems, <laughs> problems arose. We arrive in New Guinea, 2003. We're not there 10 minutes. And, and, and the government outpost area, we should have 12 hours of power of day, seven days a week. And you know what happens? We're there 10 minutes. I'm standing at the place where the, the fan was on. It goes off. End of October of 2003. I didn't know why the power went out. Nor did I realize it would not come back on until February. They ran out of money for fuel. I remember coming back here. July 1st, 2015 was my very first service here. We arrived back in from the lower 40th on June 30th, the evening of June 30th. Evening of June 30th, we get, we, get into ta- we get into town that late. Pastor Roach was out of town. He would be almost until we had the changeover service, actually. And I knew, I got to church and I knew right away, I have some problems. I have some problems. When you determine you're going to be doing something for the Lord, hindrances will come. Opposition will be present. We see that happening with him. Opposition arose. The devil will fight. Make no mistake about it. The spiritual battle is real. The devil will always work to impede or destroy uh, any work for the Lord. To try and impede the gospel as best he can. Now these men head out. We have, we have Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark. Let's go ahead and go to the, the, to the slide we have right here. I have plenty of a pointer now. This is the first missionary journey. Now, we're just getting into the very first part of this today. But this is the part of the world that it's taking place in. Right here is the church at Antioch. You drop down about 15 miles. You're at this port town right here. To this island, Cyprus. Now, they head here for one... You can see why the Lord led him here. This is the home of Barnabas. Barnabas is going back to the area that he knows. This is where he grew up. And so they're going to travel through this entire island right here. This is about, uh, about 110 miles. All right, they're going to go down to Pathmos here. And then they're going to come on up. Where we finished reading was right when they got into Perga right here. They get right into this area. And this is going to stop. But this, this is the entire journey here. Where they're going to travel through those mountains. Very treacherous. Um, Antioch of Pisidia. Come down to Lystra. Uh, um, down to Derby, Iconium. Uh, making all the way back to the church at Antioch. Thank you. So they get to the island of Cyprus. <clears throat> they get on the boat. This is where the Holy Spirit led them to begin their ministry. John Mark, of course, is with them to assist them. He's the guy that's going to be making needful arrangements. Um, who knows what all he did? Uh, but you, you can just you can just imagine the different uh, things he'd be he'd be helping supplying their needs, travel arrangements, comfort, whatever. That's what he's going to be doing. While they're focusing on the teaching and preaching of the word of God and and the converts, John Mark is there to assist them. So they travel through that island. And they get to the capital. So this capital of Cyprus, it's an interesting city, especially at this time in world history. Uh, this is obviously the seat of the Roman government. It is also a great center for the worship of, of Venus. This, this city was known as one of the most wicked, vile cities of its day. It was full of sexual immorality. Matter of fact, every woman on the island was expected at some point to offer herself as a prostitute at the temple. This is where Paul heads. They get into the capital. No doubt they're preaching. Paul established his routine right away. He heads in. He heads to the synagogue. He preaches there basically until they kick him out. 
while Paul is preaching in the capital of the island, the governor himself asked to see him. He's the governor. A prudent man means he's an intelligent man. He hears about these two men and they're preaching, and he says, I want to hear him. He wants to hear what they have to say. So the governor, the most important political figure on the island, the man in charge, they get an audience with. Incredible. However, resistance is right there. This governor has an advisor who is with him. My guess is by the wording, it was a key advisor. It wasn't just somebody he went to from time to time, but he leaned on this guy a lot. Elymas, the Greek name of Bar-Jesus. And it, basically it means magician or enlightened one. So the governor saw him as this wise man. He saw the power he did, but it was all by deceit and by mischief and by this magic. This man was demonic. <clears throat> the name he took again means enlightened one. Isn't it amazing today that those who choose to mock God, even in our day, mock his existence and mock his word. They proclaim themselves as the enlightened ones. As if they know. As if, as if we are the foolish ones. Men like Dawkins. Men who, although you can look around at how incredible creation is, and it's so clear, everything screams creator. And in your enlightened stage, you can proclaim there is no God. How foolish. That's ridiculous. <clears throat> so this man claims to be some enlightened one. He's also a Jew. This is a Jew who has left his faith and turned to demonism. And Paul knows he's a Jew. He begins to resist, as we see in verse 8. But Elimus, the sorcerer, for so is his name by interpretation, withstood them, seeking to turn away the deputy from the faith. So what happens is, the governor calls for Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas, Paul, uh, no doubt, begins to preach the gospel to him. Elimus sees this. He's like, I'm not having this. He begins to interfere. Whether it's just through words at this time, mocking what they're saying and trying to convince uh, um, the governor, listen, don't listen to them. He's doing whatever he can to try and present, prevent him from coming to the faith. The opposition has come. He used deceit. He was trying to discredit the message. See, this man knows if the governor converts to this, he knows he himself will be seen as an imposter. The man loved his popularity. He loved his power. He wanted his political influence in place. He's not about to try, he's not about just to stand by and let this governor come to a faith in Christ. Boy, so often, so many people refuse to come to Christ because of some measurement of worldly success or something in the world they think they're going to have to give up. Paul responds to him in 9 and 10. Then Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Ghost, set his eyes on him and said, O full of all subtlety and all mischief, thou child of the devil, thou enemy of all righteousness, wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? Saul, by the way, look at verse 9, the first couple of words. Are, then Saul, who is called Paul, he won't be called Saul again. It's now Paul. 
The change here is in place. Paul sets his eyes on him. You can just see. In my mind, I pictured as he's in this court area, Paul is preaching to the governor. I think there will be others around besides just the four men. But I think all of a sudden, the sorcerer realizes the conviction that's hitting on the governor. Because we're going to see later, he is astonished at the doctrine he is hearing. And he realizes it, and I believe he begins to do whatever, whether it was just mocking, whatever it was, but he tries to prevent the preaching at that point. Paul locks eyes on him. Could you just imagine this penetrating look from Paul? I mean, he's having none of this. He knows this man is under demonic influence. And that man, I think, knew when Paul looked at him, I'm in trouble. He knows this man is wicked, and Paul calls him out for what he is before the governor. Full of subtlety, denotes deceit and fraud. He's on the governor. The only reason this man is influenced, what you're seeing him do is full of deceit. It's not real. It's full of mischief. This is a Greek word that means doing wickedness with ease. Deceitfully evil. Also used with the word, which is interesting, fish hook. You know, when you're going fishing, that fish hook is very deceitful to that fish. Look, dinner. He didn't realize he's speaking of himself at that moment when he goes to grab that fish hook. He's full of mischief, mischief, full of subtlety. Paul calls him a child of the devil, the enemy of righteousness. So many who try and promote evil, they try and even do it in a, in a righteous fashion. I mean, he's before an intelligent man, the Bible tells us, in the governor. So I have no doubt that his advisor, in trying to pre- prevent him uh, uh, from coming to Christ, is trying to present his position as that of the righteous one. Well, we see that today. They call evil good and good evil. I mean, the abortion debate is rising again. At times, I'm just astonished. My body, my choice. My body, my choice. Fine. I, I, I don't care what you with your body. I care about the body that's inside you. The one that you're supposed to be protecting, that you refuse to protect because it's not expedient for you. What about that body? But today, we call evil good and good evil. He says, you're perverting the ways of the Creator. This is exactly what the devil tries to do. Pervert the ways of the Creator. So we see Paul confronting him. He gives us a great example. He goes right at him. Paul knows this man is even guiltier than most being a Jew. Paul doesn't try and find some common ground and reason with. He goes right at him, calling him a child of the devil, proclaiming his words are straight from hell. Again, when you do set out to reach others for Christ, you can be sure that the devil, hell will, hell will do all it can to prevent what you are doing. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. I remember we were in P&G, and we had really some amazing things happen in the village of Kistila. There was a, what was called, I referred to it several times, so I won't get into it, but it was a united church in that village. It was running close to gospel preaching. The church treasurer coming to know the Lord. 
uh, several others in the village had come to know Christ. It, it was neat to see. I was packing my truck out. I mean, I had that white pickup truck, just a small, it's smaller than even a Ford Ranger, but it's of that style, um, with that small little bed on it. I'd have, we're not talking kids, we're talking adults. I would get up to 27 people on my truck. Think of that, 27. Mostly from that village. In the villages every week, every Monday, they had a meeting called Line. They would discuss village issues. Well, in the, in the midst of these people coming to know Christ, uh, one of the men who was a deacon at the United Church stood up. I'd never met him. And he, he spouted a ton of lies that the missionary that's here, he's buying, he's paying these people to go. He's paying them to head to this church. He's giving away stuff. I, I've done none of those things. I'd heard about it. And I, and I thought, I'll just go and talk to him and we'll work this out. Try and give him the gospel. So when I found out, I headed out to that village to go meet with him. And he did not know I was coming. And so I showed up. I found where he was. I had him pointed out to me. And I, and, I, and I go up to him. And I knew immediately, I am dealing with a man who is demonically controlled. He sees me coming. I, I get about ten feet from him and I'm still walking towards him. You could, you could see him almost starting to shake. And, and, and he starts yelling immediately. He's not going to talk. I won't talk to you. Go. And I said, I, listen, I just wanted to, I said, I think we should talk. And I'm trying to tell him, listen, the things you said I did, I've never done. And you can see the anger coming. I mean, and I'm like, this man's not in his right mind. And he had influence in that village. Not only was he deacon, he was a leader in that village. And he had influence. Listen, when things start to take place, listen, battles are going to come. You're going to have opposition. It's going to take place. So then Paul, once he set his eyes on him, he said in verse 11, And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon thee. Thou shalt be blind, not seeing the sun for a season. And immediately there fell on him a mist and a darkness, and he went about seeking some to lead him by the hand. Then the deputy, when he saw what was done, believed, being astonished at the doctrine of the Lord. So here we have him. Paul says, Paul confronts him. He says, the hand of the Lord is against you right now. And he says, you're going to be blind for a season. I'm amazed still at the grace of God. To, act, to perhaps even give time for this man to repent. And there's in some writings that he did repent, although I wouldn't base it on, on, on the man who wrote it. It was Origen. Origen just would just make up stuff. And, uh, but he's the only one that did write down that this man did actually repent. But you still see God's hand. All of a sudden he's having to be led around. Blindness strikes him for a time. God judging him. But again, showing mercy, perhaps to give a place of repentance. When the governor sees this, though, he repents and puts his faith in Christ. The governor knew this man is an imposter. And I love how it words it. It wasn't simply the miracle that he just saw of Paul, of the blindness hitting this man just like that. I mean, he saw this man with his demonism do all kinds of things. What he was astonished at was the word of God, was the gospel itself. When he heard what the Son of God, the Creator of all, did for him. You know what? You can just see as the Holy Spirit was working on his heart how it all made sense. How there isn't all these gods. How there is no such God as Venus. That that's full of wickedness and vileness. That there's only one true God. That man has turned against him. 
following our own way, our sinful desires and our sinful life, and hearing what He did in becoming a man Himself. And no doubt He probably heard of the Lord Jesus Christ. The miracles that He did. All that had happened. And Paul's preaching about this man's life. And telling him, listen, He is your means of salvation. How God Almighty is going to judge you. You'll be guilty. He's telling you, you're going to be found guilty. But Jesus Christ already took your place when He went to that cross. And listen, it's true. One day you will stand before God. He will judge you and you will be found guilty. You have broken His law. God is not going to look at you and say, you know what? You and I, we had our own thing worked out. You, you were a good church member. You got baptized. That's not how this is going to work. Getting baptized in that water does not take away sin. You see, something has to take place when you stand before God. You look perfect. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ did. When God became a man, He lived the perfect life. He's the only one in all of world history to live the perfect life. He lived that perfect life for you. Think about that. He's the only one that can stand before the Father. The Father can say, you're innocent. Listen to me. He lived that life for you. When He went to the cross, the Bible says this. For He hath made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteous of God in Him. Many have heard the phrase that Christ died for you, but they don't understand it today. What it means is this. When Christ went to that cross, God the Father placed upon Him all of your sin. My sin. On Him. As if He was the sinner. And He judged Him in your place. God said, I'll take that. That will satisfy my justice. So Christ took your sin. The Father judged Him in your place. And that also enabled Him, as that verse said, to give you His Righteousness, which is perfect. If the Lord Jesus Christ takes all of your sin and He gives you His perfect life, guess what it looks like when you stand before God? It looks like you're perfect. It's only in repentance and faith in Christ that that takes place. So He heard this, He's astonished. This is what He wants. Because remember, Paul got interrupted by this guy. Paul set his eyes on him. You child of the devil. You enemy of everything righteous. The Lord is against you. You are blinded for a season. Paul continues. He's astonished at the doctrine and he believes. Incredible. But then as we finish this today, problems from within. Look at verse 13. Now, when Paul and his company loosed from Patmos, they came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. John Mark departs. We have the outside attack from, from Elymas. You have the inside attack from John Mark. Listen, we'll get attacked from inside and the outside. The devil works strong from the inside to try and cause uh, um, division, discord, disunity, whatever he can do. The devil will attack however he can. And here we have John Mark departing from them. We don't know why. We know from Paul it wasn't a good reason whatever it was. Maybe it's when they arrived. They would, where they arrive at, by the way, think about this. I should have pointed out the map. Tarsus is right there. This is Paul's area now. 
They have to cross through the Tarsus Mountains, which were known for how dangerous it was. Packed with criminals in there. Maybe John Mark got there and said, you know what, I'm, I'm heading back. I'm not, I'm not doing this. Maybe it was just the fact of the romance of it all went away. The romance of it all just departed. You know, at first it was exciting, but then all of a sudden you get into the everyday battles of this. And the romance left. I've said it before, I'll say it again. There's a world of difference when you decide you're going to surrender into missions. When you arrive in a place and you have that return ticket in your pocket, then when you arrive in a place and you don't have a return ticket. It's a different mindset. It's different when you know you're leaving in a couple weeks than it is when you know this is now home. It's a different mindset. We don't know why he went back. We just know it wasn't a good reason. Maybe it was he realized there was a price to pay. He wasn't willing to pay it. Listen, don't quit. Even though things may look difficult as you're serving the Lord, or you're afraid you will fail, keep going. Keep going. By the way, even if you fail, just get right back up. We all fail. Learn from it. But if you're going to stay back and do nothing and not get involved, you're going to miss what it's all about. The sweetness of serving God. And we do know, thankfully, John Mark did get right. He did. The Lord ended up using him to pen in the gospel of Mark. It's his gospel gospel coming from Peter. So as I conclude today, the fact is, we as a church, we need to be faithful, putting ourselves in a place that God can use us. Realizing that life is all about God. Getting serious with our faith and with what the Lord has. And we know that when we do get serious, battles will come. But the great thing is, we're on the winning side. We are. We're on the winning side. Stay faithful, don't quit. With heads bowed and eyes closed.